And we'll begin reading in verse 17 and reading through verse 34. Let's give our attention now to the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead of his own meal with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, It will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices or to our own understanding, but you speak the truth and you teach us in order that we might walk in your ways. We pray that this very day you will bestow a blessing upon us, open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law, and teach us your ways and enable us by the grace of your Spirit's work to walk in them and bring you glory. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, The passage we have just read is probably familiar to many of you, 
At least the apostle's words beginning in verse 23 and following when he describes the fact that he was taught by Christ himself, we assume in the desert where Paul was for three years before he began preaching and teaching, that the Lord Jesus communicated this very passage, these very words to the apostle Paul. And he in turn passed them on to the Corinthians. But this morning I have included a little bit more of the context for this reason, that I want us to gain a fuller picture of this ordinance, this particular ordinance that we call the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. On the one hand, I want us to understand more fully and understand more of the the wonders and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is portrayed in this simple ordinance. But on the other hand, I want us also to, to see and understand there is a right way to do this and a wrong way to do it. There, as Paul says, there can be an eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. That's what the Corinthian church was doing. They were keeping the Lord's Supper or observing the Lord's Supper, but not doing it in the way that God had commanded them. And it was acting in an unworthy manner. Now that, by definition, means... If there is an unworthy manner of observing the Lord's Supper, then there is also a worthy way to do it. Now, lest you think this distinction is something that seminary students and pastors might argue about, and this is a a minute point of little consequence, But I want to call your attention to the words in verse 29 and 30. When Paul says, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment. The judgment of God upon himself. And then he goes on to say in verse 30, it's because of this many of you are sick. And some of you have even died. My friends, eating and drinking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner is of major consequence. God doesn't always manifest his judgment in the same way. But we might not be living under the blessing of God. If we are eating and drinking this ordinance in an unworthy manner. I would think that even a casual reading of these words should be enough to convince us that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper should not be received lightly. But with great care and diligence. Now, don't misunderstand 
what Paul is saying. He's not trying to scare anyone away from the Lord's table. Here is an ordinance that our Savior has ordained uniquely to be of spiritual encouragement to us. It is meant to be a time of soul-refreshing grace. It's meant to be a time in which we draw especially near to the Lord in this communion. But because of the way the sacrament portrays the role of the sufferings of Christ for our redemption, it must be observed with great care. Now, my desire this morning is to show you from this and other passages how to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. In order that, we might experience the fullness of God's blessing upon his church. That's why he has ordained this sacrament to be a blessing to his people. Now, two main points, you see them there in your bulletins. We're going to talk about doing what God commands in the way God commands it to be done. And then the second thing, we're going to take that principle and apply it specifically to the Lord's Supper. How has God commanded us to keep this sacrament? So let's look, first of all, at doing what God commands in the way God commands it. And you would think that if someone wants to do what God has commanded, and, and they have a sincere desire to try and keep those commandments, surely they would do it in the way God commanded it to be done. Well, that might seem the way it should be, but the scriptures record several examples to show that is not necessarily the case. The first one we find back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 4. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 4 and beginning in verse 1, we read about Adam and Eve bearing Cain and Abel. And in the process of time, we're told in verse 3 that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, but Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. The Lord respected Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's offering. Now, Moses doesn't spell it out for us here, but we can assume that God had commanded man to worship him and that he had commanded them to bring a sacrifice to him an offering to him. And further, we can say that God had commanded that that sacrifice be an animal sacrifice. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says? Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. God had commanded a blood sacrifice. But you know what? Cain didn't like Abel. Abel was the herdsman. Cain was the farmer. 
And Cain didn't want to go to Abel and have to get a sacrifice. So he just says, you know what? I've got some really nice looking vegetables here that I've grown. I'm going to bring it to God. And God rejected Cain's offering because it wasn't what God had commanded. Look at verse 7. When God sees that Cain is mad because his sacrifice was rejected, he says, Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Well, how do you know when you've done something right? When you've done what God commands you to do, you know that's right. Cain was wanting to go halfway with the Lord. He brought the sacrifice. It was a good act, but he didn't offer what God had commanded in the way he commanded it to be done. A second example we find in the book of 2 Samuel. David has become king. David was a good king. God himself testified, here is a man after my own heart. And David at one point reaches a place where he wants to restore the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and to the house of the Lord. And so he brings the Ark to Jerusalem, or at least seeks to do so. So in 2 Samuel, in verse 1 and following, and particularly in verse 3, we read, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. Well, most of us know exactly what happens as they're going along. The oxen stumble, and it appears that the ark is going to fall off the wagon. And so what Uzzah does is exactly what you and I probably would have done. He stuck out his hand to steady it, to hold it still. And God immediately struck him dead. Why? Because no one was to touch the ark. What was the problem? David wanted to bring the ark to Jerusalem. That was a good act. It would have furthered the the true worship of God in the tabernacle. But he didn't do it the way God commanded it to be done. God had commanded that the ark was never to be touched. And therefore, it had rings on each side. And poles were meant to be inserted in those rings. And it was to be lifted and carried upon the shoulders of the priest. So that no one ever touched it. David did what God had commanded. But he didn't do it the way God commanded it to be done. But perhaps the clearest example is right here in these familiar words of 1 Corinthians 11. The Corinthian church was observing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but they were not observing it the way God had commanded it to be observed. They 
were keeping it in an unworthy manner. Now, how so? Well, we can say specifically, they were coming to the Lord's table without a due sense of reverence or seriousness. They were treating this sacrament as if it were an ordinary meal. And so when you look at verse 21, and he talks about what's going on, and he has just told them, when you come together to eat, it's not for the Lord's Supper. You're mixing two things, a common, ordinary meal of fellowship and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And what were they doing? In verse 21, he says, for for in calling each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. They're treating it like an ordinary meal. And, and the rich people who had plenty to eat were gorging themselves, and the poor people were sitting there with nothing to eat. Others were drinking heavily. To the point that they got drunk. Also a violation of what God commands. But they were eating and drinking. All they were doing was thinking about themselves. There was no consideration of the others. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. As they came together for this love feast. They were enjoying themselves. But not thinking of others. There was no examination of their faith. No examination of their love, certainly no testimony of that love being, being active in their lives for one another. And there were definitely no repentance for where they were doing it wrongly. And as a result, my friends, instead of receiving benefits and blessings from the Lord's Supper, they received judgment and wrath from God. Surely, if this passage does nothing else, does it not cause us to start asking a couple of questions? Number one, are you doing what God has commanded? And doing it in the way that he commands it to be done. Or are you thinking, you know what, I've I've got some novel ideas. I think they're pretty good ideas. And I think God will like them. I can tell you, every time you go down that road, it will not end well. Remember Nadab and Abihu? When they come before the Lord, and we're not told exactly what happened, but we're told that they offered strange fire. And the fire of the Lord came out from the altar and killed them both dead. And the reason God gave was they offered that which I have not commanded to be offered. It's not about your good ideas. It's about what God has commanded and doing it the way that he commands it. Second question, are you, have you been, are you prepared now 
to observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Instead of doing what you like, like the Corinthians, doing it what God has commanded. Have you already spent time examining your heart, your love for the Lord, the way you live your life? Is it pleasing in the sight of God? What about your commitment to the Lord? Is it 110% or 50% of the time? We need to seek to do what God has commanded in the way that he commands it. Now, how do we do that? How do you examine your heart and life and love and repentance and all the rest? Well, it leads us to our second point where we can get very specific. How has God commanded us to keep the Lord's Supper? I mentioned last week, in a preparatory remarks that the Lord's Supper was coming up and there would be great benefit if you would read and think about what the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter Catechism have to say about this. Now, question number 97, if you take out your hymnals and turn in the back of them to page... uh, 876. You can have the detailed description there. Here we see how we may come in a worthy manner. The question is very simple. Number 97, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? Now, my friends, we're not talking about, well, I'm worthy. The Lord owes me. He, he owes me a blessing. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, how do you do what God has commanded in the way that God commands it to be done? That is what is a worthy partaking. And the question is answered in these terms. It is required of them that would worthily partake of the Lord's Supper, that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest coming unworthily they eat and drink judgment to themselves. Now, ladies and gentlemen, young people who have made a profession of faith and have been admitted to the Lord's table, listen, there there may be other things that will help you to get more out of the Lord's Supper. But if you take these five things and give them your due attention and study them, think about them, pray over them, they will carry you far down this road of blessing instead of judgment. This is what it means to worthily partake of the Lord's Supper. I want us to take the rest of our time together looking at these five areas in which we need to examine ourselves. Number one, 
We must examine ourselves of our knowledge to discern the Lord's body. Verses 28 and 29 in our text are very clear. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Specifically in this, not discerning the Lord's body. We need, number one, to be absolutely certain we are born again. What Paul is describing in verses 28 and 29 is a person who has assurance, who has confidence that he is trusting in the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ alone. That's his hope. That is where he is resting. This this passage speaks from start to finish of a personal work of Christ in his sacrifice, in his death and burial and resurrection for you. This is not in general for people without distinction. This is my body broken for you. This is about an individual's personal faith and trust in Christ. Notice how Paul says, for as often as you you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death. What does that mean? It means that every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming, you are declaring, this is my Savior and my redemption is found in his sacrifice for me. That's what Paul is describing. A man must be born again to do that. You cannot proclaim the Lord's death as the ground of your salvation unless you know the Lord and have trusted in Christ. Secondly, they must be of sufficient age and understanding to discern the Lord's body. In other words, they must be able to understand when we take up this bread and say, this is the body of Christ. They need to be able to understand what that means. It's not literally the body of Christ. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, his body was right there in front of the disciples. What he's saying is this is a picture of my broken body. When he took up the cup, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? Why are we drinking something, even symbolically, that stands for the blood of Christ? Because it's by the blood of Christ that our sins are forgiven. And we are proclaiming that. You must be able to discern that body and blood in order to take worthily. If you eat this bread, and this applies to all of you, if you eat this bread and drink this cup without discerning the body and blood of Christ, 
my friends, you will eat and drink judgment to yourself. This is one of the reasons why the PCA is so careful. This is one of the reasons why we say you must be a member of an evangelical church. It's not that we're the only church. But we're saying you've, you've come before the elders of the church and you've professed faith and you've been examined and admitted to the Lord's table. There's a certain confidence there when other men agree that the work of God's grace in your heart is real and verifiable. We can be wrong, but we try. We do not want to be responsible for one of you eating or drinking judgment to yourself. We guard this table. We fence this table, as we say, because we are concerned about your souls. Let me just add this. Children, maybe you love Jesus Maybe you've believed in Jesus as your Savior, but you don't yet understand what, what is this all about. You, you don't discern the body and blood of Christ. Talk to your parents. Ask them questions. Tell me about this. Explain this to me. What does this mean? It's just like the children in, in the, the Passover when the children would come before their parents and say, what, what does this service that you're doing mean? Children, ask your parents. Parents, talk to your children. Teach them. Explain to them what this means. We must examine ourselves of our knowledge to discern the Lord's body. Secondly, we must examine ourselves regarding our faith to feed on Christ. Think about those words. Examine yourself of your faith to feed on Christ. The the point is, my friends, this is not just that we understand what these actions mean. There's got to be more. There should be that which gives us a a sense of the sweetness of drawing near to Christ, the soul satisfaction of taking hold of Christ, a spiritual feeding upon him. I wonder if we went around this room one by one and said, you have that sense of feeding on Christ, how would you respond? I think the idea here is that we draw closer to God and that particularly in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, there is a spiritual nourishing of our souls. Just as a physical meal nourishes your body, The sacrament of the Lord's Supper, if you are feeding on Christ by faith, is going to nourish your soul. It's no accident that Jesus chooses food and drink to represent the benefits of the new covenant 
in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. My friends, God does not save us when we respond in faith and put our trust in Jesus. He doesn't say, great, uh, I'll see you in glory. God is interested in every day of our lives. He watches over us. He cares for us. He protects us from the enemy. And he strengthens and he nourishes us so that we grow more and more like our Savior every day. And especially in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Jesus uses these very vivid terms to picture to the eyes of faith. To the eyes of faith. Faith, examine themselves of their faith to feed upon Christ, to be spiritually enriched, to have your soul nourished. When we, by faith, see Christ in the Lord's Supper, we see the great sacrifice that He made for our redemption. Brethren, our faith is strengthened, our hope is enlivened, we taste and, and grasp something of the sweetness of communion with Christ, and we're filled with expectation and experience of the joy of justification and the forgiveness of sin. We started with those words from the book of Isaiah. You may want to turn back. Listen again to how Isaiah says. 61, Isaiah 61 in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me. One of the things that you will feel in the Lord's Supper if you're Feeding upon Christ by faith. You're going to feel what it's like to have Christ clothe you with the garments of salvation. To dress you in a robe of righteousness that makes you perfect and acceptable in the sight of God. My friends, we're not coming before God thinking that our good works, our many prayers, our faithful service to the church is going to win us anything. We are coming in faith, putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his clothing of us with a robe of righteousness, his righteousness and perfect obedience. Third, we must examine ourselves of our repentance. If there's one area where the the American church is absolutely anemic, it's here. We have little comprehension of the idea of repentance and what that means. I would highly recommend, as I have oftentimes Uh, Thomas Watson's book, The Doctrine of Repentance, and nothing that can equal it as far as explaining 
that doctrine. But here we are to examine ourselves of our repentance. And it's almost as if Paul anticipates someone misinterpreting his words and misapplying them. And so he's, he's thinking someone's going to say, well, you know what? I, I sinned this past week or perhaps yesterday, perhaps this morning before you came to church. Better for me not to eat than to, to have sinned and come to the Lord's table and then receive judgment as a result. Or there may be others that say, well, pastor, you know, I, I'm taking your words to heart. And you know what? I, I just haven't prepared well. This past week, and and it probably would be better that I should wait and not take the Lord's Supper. Brethren, look again at his words in verse 28. In verse 28, the apostle says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. Do you understand what Paul's saying? Paul's not trying to keep anyone away from the Lord's table. He's not trying to discourage weak believers from coming because of the struggles, the sins, the failures, the weakness that they have. That is not what he is doing. His purpose is to bring them to repentance. That's why the the divines from Westminster phrase this the way they do. Examine yourself of your repentance. Paul says, have you sinned? Repent. Examine yourself. If you see some area where you've fallen short, repent of that. Turn from it and trust Christ and do it now. Whatever stands in your way, This morning, from partaking of the Lord's Supper, deal with it. Deal with it now, if at all possible. A particular sin, repent. If you haven't prepared well, confess that. Repent of it and eat. Paul's not trying to keep people away. He's trying to bring them to repentance. He's trying to get them to draw near to Christ, to put their whole faith and trust in him and his perfect robe of righteousness. Now, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer, you have not yet come to faith in Christ or put your trust in Christ as your redeemer, don't eat. Because this is specifically given for believers. For those who have entered into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But deal with that. I beseech you this morning, be reconciled to God. Go to him. Confess your sin to him. Believe on Jesus. Call upon his name. And then at the earliest possible opportunity, seek to be united with the people of God in a local church where you can serve and minister and enjoy all the blessings God has bestowed upon his people. Fifthly, or fourthly, we must examine ourselves of our love. Got to speed things up here a little bit. Examine ourselves of our love. What happens 
when we come to the Lord's table. Even if you're a brand new believer, if if you're a weak believer, you come to the Lord's table, we see his love for us in in a striking way. And what does that do to us? It stirs our hearts to love him. We are to examine ourselves of our love. 1 John 4.19 says we love him because he first loved us. When we see the love of Christ for his church, that he gave himself for her, it moves us to love him. But it doesn't just move us to love him. It moves us to love one another. And so when, when John is, is talking in that same chapter in 1 John 4 and verse 10, he says, this is the love of God that was manifested to us in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, listen. Beloved, if God so loved us, what's going to happen? We also ought to love one another. We could spend a whole sermon on that. Are you loving the brethren? Is there any care or concern about the needs of your brothers and sisters in this body? Brethren, examine yourself of your love. And lastly, we examine ourselves of our obedience. When we receive the gifts and graces God has bestowed, it changes us. Instead of living for ourselves like those Corinthians were doing, we live for him who loved us and gave himself for us. Paul says it in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by what God has done for you, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices to God. You seek to serve him. 1 John 2, 5, he says that God has loved us, and therefore we seek to keep his word. It is uncanny the way John ties loving God and obedience keeping God's commandments many verses to which he speaks in this it doesn't mean brethren we're going to do it perfectly because we're not we're going to fail right now you're probably thinking of ways that you have come short or you failed to hit the mark You haven't done it perfectly. But you know what? There is one who has. And his robe of righteousness is offered to us when we by faith come to Jesus. And he clothes that with perfect obedience. And he fills us with joy that we might serve him with delight and that we might seek to be obedient to his commandments. The Corinthian church was doing what God commanded. 
They were getting together for what they thought was the Lord's Supper. Paul says, that's not what this is about. You're not doing it the way God commanded. How are you going to observe the Lord's Supper? Will it be in an unworthy manner or in a worthy manner? May God enable us by his grace to do it worthily to his glory and our soul's eternal good. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have not dealt with us as our sins deserve. We pray that you would bless us now as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table and that you would use this time to be a time of spiritual fellowship and enjoyment and encouragement and nourishment for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.